Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. Easter is, is almost upon us. And this week has seen the, the death of former Chancellor of the Exchequer, Nigel Lawson. And so we thought, well, Neil thought, that uh, it would be a good idea to do a, an appreciation which yeah. we've, which we've entitled "The Nigel I Knew" by by Neil. Yeah, and like most similar <laughs> um, volumes, it's a fraud. I, I did not know him well. I met him obviously a few times, and indeed the last time last year. I can't claim that I knew him in any reasonable meaning of the word, but he is my second most impressive chancellor since the last war. Who's number one? Geoffrey Howe, who is widely underrated, his great talent was he could deliver bad news in such a monochrome voice that people didn't really notice that the uh, stiletto was going into their bank account. Uh, So he imposed some pretty gruesome policies, which were very necessary in 1979. So Nigel Lawson, who was made energy secretary... Cut his teeth in the first Thatcher administration. Well, he was in the Treasury first, wasn't he? He was, a, he was financial secretary right at the beginning under yes. Jeffrey Howe and then became energy secretary he then be- he in became an, He became energy secretary and after Thatcher was defeated by the miners in the first miners' strike, he was the architect of the stock building of coal at the power stations, which gave the government the clout to be able to resist the the miners' strike, which eventually failed and led to the essentially the collapse of the industry, which was really being run as a sort of arm of the state. The value of the coal was less than the cost of getting it out. Hmm. I think he learned how to marshal things by organising that when he was energy secretary. And I think that's why when Geoffrey Howe went to the Foreign Office after the election, Thatcher made him the 83 election. Chancellor in 83. Before we get on to his chancellorship, let's just go back. He was obviously, he was born in the, whatever, the 1930s. First of all, he was a journalist. I don't know if you ever came across him as a journalist. Did he ever run a red pen through your copy? <laughs> no. <laughs> you he... felt a bit like a miner <laughs> watching the coal stocks pile up outside I, I th- the power stations. <laughs> I, I think he was even before my time, which is saying something right. after okay. half a century in the business. Okay. He was a very successful journalist. He was at the FT and then at the Sunday Telegraph and then later at the Spectator. I he think. became editor of the Spectator, yes. And then went into Parliament. Mrs. Thatcher spotted him as a bright young thing and he helped her prep for prime minister's questions in the late 70s and then as we yeah. there we come on to he was obviously one of the people she rather liked the look of i can't remember what, who who coined this probably someone ian gilmore who said that the cabinet was half full of estonians and half full of etonians and uh, i think he was had his, had his mind on nigel lawson when he thought talked about estonians because his grandfather i think did come from somewhere in the baltic states but anyway he was obviously one of us to Mrs. Thatcher. And so when she had her opportunity in 1983, after the victorious election, she put him in as Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is fair to say, he was pretty much the most, I would say he was the most dominant Chancellor of the Exchequer of my lifetime in terms of 
a man who was intellectually very comfortable in the job. And clearly it was the one job he really wanted. He didn't want to be prime minister. He didn't I think have that, that. I think that's absolutely key to being a good chancellor. If you want the top job, you're always looking ahead to see how you can get it. Yeah. Like how before him, mm. I don't think either of them had realistic ambitions to become yeah. prime minister, which made them much better at what they did. Yeah, I think that's right. Let's think about his chancellorship. You obviously were writing away in your in the Telegraph when he was in his his prime. <laughs> what were the what would what would you cite as the main achievements of Nigel Lawson as chancellor? I think I would put simplification at the top of tax. my list. He boasted of abolishing a tax with every budget. Mm-hmm. And one of them he abolished actually produced more revenue although that seems rather bizarre, he abolished the capital gains tax on government securities. And since most holders of government securities were showing losses, which they could offset against their gains elsewhere, this uh, (laughs) piece of... Wasn't treated with... (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, this very... Undivided pleasure. (laughs) This magnanimous move actually uh, generated uh, revenue for the government, which was very clever. But he, he, he... Put that up as one of his totems, that he was trying to simplify things and all the time he was looking for ways to make the system work better rather than grabbing headlines, which is what seems to have happened with almost every other chancellor since he left. Uh, The other thing I seem to remember he said about tax was he said that the only time you could reform tax was in the good times (laughs) because basically every time you try to to tinker with tax... You created lots of losers who yelled much louder than the winners. And so the only time you could really do it was when the number of losers was sufficiently small and drowned out by the general atmosphere of drumbeat of prosperity. I don't think it was quite like that. It it was that if you made a change, you produced some very vociferous, small number of very vociferous losers. And the winners hardly noticed exactly that was the trouble yeah and that's true then as it is now yeah and that's one of the reasons why it is so difficult to reform he was an intellectual giant which was kind of unusual Mm. when you look at the list of chancellors that we've had Mm. he had a very clear idea of what he wanted to do Mm. which was actually spelled out in a paper he wrote for the center for policy studies in 1988 where he pointed out the shortcomings of the general rather wishy-washy consensus of it was generally called butskillism because it was a sort of hybrid between mm. Labour and Conservative. Mr Butler and Mr but, Gateskill. Quite. But one of the things that he said in that piece, which I, struck me, he said, the less successful the government became, mm-hmm. the more it sought to extend its area of responsibility. And I think that is actually a motto for our times. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, well, 1988, of course, brings us to his sort of his most famous budget, the one where he basically undertook quite a big overhaul of the tax system. And there were two, I think, two things stuck in my mind. I remember I was working in the city in those days. And I remember when he announced the changes to tax rates, 
There was a great cry of <laughs> profanity <laughs> went up across the trading room as people absorbed <laughs> this, this information. But also, he, uh, he, he rebased uh, all the inflation he cut out from the... From, rebasing they, for capital gains. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So he cut out the 70s with all its dramatic inflationary, which is also a very interesting idea. But if we come to the 88 budget, do you think the 88 budget, which he's probably the thing he's most remembered for, was a success or was a failure? I wouldn't specifically highlight one budget because the whole point of what he was trying to do was to to take a long-term view and be consistent. Yep. He invented the medium-term financial strategy. A very, that didn't last. Very pompous uh, <laughs> expression. But there was a consistency of approach in his budgets, again, which is lacking today, as we seem to veer from one to another. I think that that was one of the reasons why in the early parts or the first, most of his time as chancellor, the economy did very well and he was fated, really, probably to the point where he started to believe his own publicity, mm. which, as we know, is absolutely fatal. Well, Mrs Thatcher, of course, was when she made him chancellor, said, I've came to share... The high opinion <laughs> Nigel had of himself. Yeah. <laughs> and, and this was his undoing, I think. If you fall out with your prime minister as chancellor, then one or both of you is doomed. And so it proved. But I think that the, the seeds for the dispute between them were sown in our good old friends, the European Union and the exchange rate mechanism which was the precursor to the euro. Mm. Lawson was very keen on the ERM because he thought it would be an anchor for the inflation-prone UK economy. OK, we should just quickly explain what the ERM was for younger listeners. Uh, <laughs> Europe in those days had many currencies, kids. Basically, it was a mechanism which dampened the fluctuations between these different European currencies. And each currency was given a sort of central rate against generally the Deutschmark. Well, and because it was the strongest, the because it was the strongest currency, and you had to support your currency so it maintained that value within certain bounds. And I think it's fair to say, why did Nigel Lawson become keen on this? And we had Paul Tucker on in past episodes, and he he talked about this elusive search for a kind of objective mechanism that would allow you to tame the British problem of inflation. And indeed, Nigel Lawson, it wasn't the first mechanism which he reached for. I think the first mechanism, it's fair to say, was a medium-term financial strategy, which was an attempt to control inflation by controlling the money supply. But the basic problem there was a bit like the Irish question. No one could agree what the money supply was. Yeah. If you got it wrong, the consequences were so horrible that Mrs. Thatcher was unprepared to raise interest rates or do whatever she was told to achieve yeah. the miracle. I think the central tenet of managing an economy is if you look at interest rates, exchange rate, and inflation. Mm. You cannot control all three. It is impossible to do it for any length of time. You can choose two, but you can't choose three. Mm. 
Mm. And I think that is what Lawson failed to understand in the end. Or it wasn't failed to understand. I think he refused to accept it. But I do think it's about as close to an iron law of economics as you can get. So this is all taking place in the second half of the 80s. The economy in the first half, so from 83 to 86, in the first part of his chancellorship, it's very much as you describe. Growth is rebounding after the recession of the early 80s. He looks like a genius. Everything is going well. Quite possibly his head gently inflates in the way that you've kindly (laughs) described. (laughs) Although photographs suggest that it was already quite inflated right at the beginning. But then things start to go a bit wrong in that inflation comes back. And... His response, first of all, is to try and pretend as if we were in the ERM. So to yeah, shadow, shadow the, what was called shadowing the Deutschmark, which yep. Mrs. Thatcher's nostrils kind of twitch after a bit and she starts to smell a rat. And mm. then when, he, when he's cornered on this, he said, no, let's just join the ERM because he's, he wants to win the argument, I suppose. Yeah. And that sets up the kind of well, whole uh, scene around 88, 89, which is his, his hubris and nemesis in swift succession. I'm afraid so. So he left the government and shortly afterwards, so did she. So it did for both of them, as uh, you might expect. I'd just like to say one or two things about after he was Chancellor, because he helped found this thing called the Global Warming Policy Foundation, which essentially is the home for climate sceptics. He wrote some very powerful stuff, basically saying we should not get hysterical about climate change. And he spent the last few years of his life trying to make people see this problem for what it was or is. It is a problem, but it is not threatening humanity on the planet, which is what we're told is the case. Those of us who are Climate sceptics would say that that's a considerable achievement. So that's the case for the uh, (laughs) (laughs) defence. I suppose my reaction to Nigel Lawson, who I do think is a very significant figure, you talked about his consistency. But looking back into the past, what one sees is the extent to which he did change his mind. His first great policy creation was the medium-term financial strategy, which was abandoned, and he abandoned it. It wasn't just abandoned against his wishes. It was followed by the ERM and shadowing the Deutschmark and then the ERM, which he later said was a mistake. The 1988 budget, he changed his mind about, not necessarily about the principle, but about the way in which it had been introduced and the fact that it did certain aspects of it put the foot down on the accelerator of the economy just as inflation was really becoming a problem again. Yeah, I think um, that I think I would have to agree with that. I come back to the point that I think that he was believing his own publicity. He he got to the point where he if he said it was going to be so, it would be so. Yeah. And I think you can see that sort of adamantine kind of faith in his own judgment in in the way in which he's moved from one position to the next. So he ended up, of course, having initially advocated the ERM as being very keen on Brexit for a reason which actually I think is probably the best argument for Brexit, which is self-government basically being the important thing. As far as the climate stuff, well, 
he won't be around. He won't be around to see whether he was right or not on that one. <laughs> yes, it got but, him in the end. <laughs> but uh, I think the best thing he did was was is sadly another thing which has been torn up, which was the equalisation of income and capital gains in a mm. way that basically must have caused enormous gnashing of teeth among the tax avoidance industry, which really depends on things like shifting yeah. income into capital gains as a way of dodging tax. And complexity. Yeah, and you complexity. Know, they love anything that's complex is good news. But that for went the, too. That, that, didn't went, not, that didn't even last. No. It's sad. I think one thing we haven't mentioned is mm. um, privatisations. Yeah. Which, from the perspective looking back so far, mm. I don't think anybody can say they've been an unalloyed success. And I would argue that the real problem with privatising the utilities was they failed to give the regulator sufficient clout and sufficient teeth to be able to constrain them and not become captured by the companies themselves. Yes, I don't know if you can lay that at his door. I think you can say that he was probably the first energy... Well, probably David Hull, his predecessor, was also the same... They basically had a profound belief that markets were the solution to a lot of things in the energy sector. And I think we're probably now realising there are limits to what markets can achieve in yeah. very long-term investments like power stations yeah. and the like. I think, I think that's fair comment. I suspect that the reason why the regulators were essentially restrained was the Treasury had one eye on the proceeds and, of course, the more yes. opportunity the privatised companies had to game the system, the more valuable they would be when they were sold. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Anyway, I want to end with a couple of fun facts about Nigel Lawson. We, we, <laughs> one of which is, obviously, was uh, of an age where he did his national service, actually very successfully, ended up as the captain of a motor torpedo boat with the splendid name of the HMS Gay Charger. And, and the, other, <laughs> the, other, the other fact, which, which, Better which than... leapt out at me from the obituaries. <laughs> Better than Boaty McBoatface, I guess. Yes, unfortunately, he wasn't allowed to christen his own boat. <laughs> <laughs> the other one was that he later became a, a mousquetaire d'Armagnac, which is some sort of... Because he lived in France for a long time, which he was awarded in this, this equally splendidly named French town of Condom. But anyway... <laughs> Thank you. Lowering the, <laughs> to that, lowering that, the tone rather, as usual. On that rather, rather cheap <laughs> note. <laughs> that was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is Briefcase.News. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.